All right, let's pray. Abba, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but you left us with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to teach us to come alongside and be that comforter that we need, uh, especially in times of trouble, that, that your Holy Spirit is there to guide us and teach us and to be with us and to strengthen us. And you lead us, whether we're to go through or under or over or just to endure whatever's coming our way, but you're the one that strengthens us, Father. And we ask now that you would enlighten our minds and understanding so that we would understand your word and the things you would have for us to know. And as always, Lord, that the things we learn, may, it, we don't, may we not become puffed up with it, but may we apply it to our hearts, but we will walk it out. And we pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, we've been working through the book of Hebrews, and, and we took a pause as we were driving along through the book of Hebrews. When we got to Hebrews 6, and we read these words, therefore, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Messiah, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, of the doctrines of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. And so we paused and got out of the car, the Hebrew bus, the book of Hebrews bus, to explore these foundations. And we've already done repentance from dead works, faith towards God. We finished doctrine of baptisms um, last Shabbat, and we'll be moving into laying on hands today. A couple of things. Real quickly, the book of Hebrews was written to encourage Jewish believers who were being persecuted for their faith in Messiah. And they had questions in their head because they said, well, if we've embraced the Messiah, why are bad things happening to us? I mean, we've come to know the Messiah, and yet the response in many of our synagogues is that we were asked to leave with very strong terms. Parents were against us, or our friends were against us, and, and the Romans are against us, and all we did was embrace the Messiah. We're going around preaching them, so they begin to question, well, maybe, maybe we didn't get this right. Just like John the Baptist wasn't sure. After getting all that revelation concerning Yeshua, when he landed in the dungeon, he started wondering, I'm not sure, let me send my disciples and see if they can ask Yeshua, is, is he the one, or should we seek after another? And Yeshua pointed him back to Scripture, that the blind eyes were being opened, that the lame were walking, that the poor were having the good news preached to them, and, and sort of put him back, and then kind of gave him a little exhortation, and blessed are those who are not offended because of me, kind of reminding John of things. Well, the same thing, that's why the book of Hebrews was written. It goes back and it says, look, Yeshua is of a greater weight of glory than anything that God has done before. And what he's saying to these Jewish believers, they look, you know that God speaking to the angels is important. You know that God speaking through Moses is important. You know that God speaking through the prophets, you should listen to them. You know that the Levitical priesthood stood in to to make atonement, to keep relationship with God. You know how important that is. Now God has spoken through his son who has a greater weight of glory. I mean, the angels worship him. The prophets spoke of him coming. Moses was a servant in his house, 
but Yeshua owns the house. The Levitical priesthood is important, but the people who served in the Levitical priesthood had to offer up sacrifices for themselves because of their own sin. So Yeshua doesn't come to do the Levitical thing again. He comes under the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And he comes, and that priesthood is eternal. It's forever and ever and ever. And he comes on that authority to make atonement, to bring people who are separated from him, to bring them close by. Starting first with the house of Israel and Judah, and then to anyone else who calls on his name. The gospel is always to the Jew first, and also to the others, to the Goyim. And so the book is written to tell the Jewish believers, look, people, our people have suffered many, many times when they choose to live for righteousness. He takes them back to the time of coming out of Egypt that you find in the fourth chapter. And he gives them an exhortation. He says, don't be like those who through unbelief, because they were starting to go through trials, were not allowed to go into the promised land but had to wander around for 40 years until they died off and their children inherited the promise. He says, don't be like that. Do not let a spirit of unbelief due to the trials that come on you for the sake of the word to cause you to back away from your confession that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and you've embraced him for salvation. Don't let trials cause you to say, you know what? This is tough. There must be a better way. You know, I know somebody, you know, they, they're going to a palm reader and they're doing better. Maybe I should try that out. My, my friend goes to the psychic and they gave him some good information. Let me try that out. Because I'm going through rough things and I know people who don't even believe in God and they are getting out of promotion and they're doing better and they are going up the ladder of success while I'm heading down. Maybe I should go and find out is there another way? Maybe this wasn't the way. And so the writer is writing them and saying, no, do not let a spirit of unbelief enter in and cause you to turn away from the hope of glory in the Messiah. And then he says, through the fourth chapter and going to the fifth, he says, by this time, you ought to be teachers, but you have need for somebody to teach you the first things, the principles, the elementary doctrines. Not that the elementary doctrines are not important because they're foundational. So you build on a foundation. And of course, our foundation, the most important foundation, the rock that we all stand upon is that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of the living God who died for your sins, who was raised up on the third day. That is our testimony. That is our confession. And we stand on that, and everything else we build on top of that. We don't put the horror first and the, and the Jewish things first. No, Yeshua is foundational. Yes, the other things go with it. But if you don't have the foundation, you're just playing religion. And religion won't save you. It might give you nice rituals and things of that nature, but it won't bring salvation to you. So you need Yeshua as the rock that you stand on. Don't leave the rock. And so the writer 
says that they need to come to a place of being teachers. He didn't mean simply in knowledge. When he talks about teaching, he's talking about becoming one who has incorporated that instruction into the way you live. See, it's easy to go out, any one of us can go on, especially today with, with Google and all that. You can just read anything you want. You can find out about any religion, any group, read up and get a lot of knowledge and your head goes bigger and bigger and bigger. As Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You can get a lot of knowledge, but do you have love? Because love will always bring you to a place of obedience and walking out the things you're learning. And so the writer of Hebrews was trying to say, look, I'm not talking about just knowledge. I'm talking about you learning to, to exercise your senses, to discern between good and evil so that you walk those things out. And that's what brought him into the sixth chapter and said, so it's talking about the elementary doctrines of Messiah. In some ways, within the context of the people he's writing, they would understand all six of those foundations as something they should have understood by understanding the flow of what happens with the Levitical system. That the whole Levitical system deals with repentance from works that lead to death. That's where you start. As you turn from the works that lead to death, then you need to turn towards God because turning... Turning from sin without turning towards God is just behavior modification, and it will not lead you to life. No, you could give people a long list of all rules and say, just start doing these things, and it will help them in some ways, but it won't lead to life. So that's why the scripture says, first, yeah, you have to teshuva, return from, you know, turn from your sin and return to God. Turn from the sin and return teshuva to God. So you turn from your sins, repentance from dead works, works that lead to death. And this is you, you know, you're approaching the temple and that's the whole thing. And all the, the, the sacrificial system, you understood, you're saying you're coming there and here you are with your sins and you brought your sacrifice and you're coming in, you're saying, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to turn from this. Then you turn towards God who's the one who's able to deliver you. And so you put your confidence in him, your trust that he is the one that's going to forgive you. He's the one that's going to cause you to walk in new ways. Then you enter into the washings, doctrines of baptism. And as we looked at before a number of weeks, though we, we stretch it out into new covenant understanding of those things, we saw originally that, that the whole Levitical system dealt with all kind of washing, dealing with disease, dealing with sin, dealing with touching unclean things. This was part of your life. But we also saw that they understood that those washings went beyond the external to touching something that was of eternal nature, something that goes on forever. And so from there, you turn out of the baptism into the laying on hands, and as we'll see today, that laying on hands within the Levitical system primarily dealt with identification and impartation, that you're identifying with the animal that's being sacrificed for you, and that's why they lay hands on that animal, so that your sins were transferred, so they would be taken away from you, and that animal was taken outside, and we'll look at that, and taken away, and, and that way, by putting faith and trust in God, you know that's how it works, that you have atonement, something that stands in, in between you and God, that takes the place of, of where you should have been sacrificed, 
because you're the one that sinned, and yet you have an animal that takes your place. Then you move on to the idea of the next one is, is foundation is resurrection. It first starts, you know, because, you know, the, we know a whole lot more on a lot of things than, than the original guys who were walking with the Levitical system. Though they had a lot of insight, we're in a place where the Spirit's been given to us that we have a whole lot more insight about things than they did. They had very little knowledge. Even Solomon, with all of his great wisdom, as he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, I'm only writing those things that were under the sun. I don't know what's on the other side. I spent my money, my time, my energy experiencing everything under the sun. And when he, in the conclusion he came to that, it's all vain. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, you're all going to end up into one place, and that is the ground. Whether rich or poor, whether animal or whatever, that's where you're going to end up. But he had insight that there was something after that. And that's why he concludes. Because if this was all there is, then it would be true. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You might as well live it up now. If that's it, if this is it, forget the rules. Buy your sword and a big gun and go out and do what you want to do. And if you get killed along the way, oh, you just got killed. There's nothing more. But Solomon had a sense there's something more. So he ends the book of Ecclesiastes where he's talking about everything under the sun. He says, what is the conclusion of the whole matter? Fear God and keep his commandments. Daniel was given even more revelation about what would happen. Daniel was told, hey, there's coming a time where there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Everybody will be raised up. That's something that's funny. Some people say you believe in God and you'll be raised up. Well, whether you believe in God or not, you will be raised up. (laughs) Believing in God does, does not the thing that gets you resurrected. Resurrection is going to come on all people on the earth, whether you're righteous or whether you're wicked. God's going to raise everybody up for what? It says in the book of Hebrews, it's appointed man wants to die, and then the judgment. So the next foundation of the resurrection is what? Eternal judgment. And Yeshua, if you look carefully, is in all of those throughout to point the way. And so that's why the writer of Hebrews said, look, guys, you should know these things. You should know from the repentance to turning to God, to the washing and cleansings, to the laying of hand and identifying with the animals and getting spiritual gifts to walk in the things of God, that one day you will be raised up at the end of your life and you have to give account of the life that you live. And you're sitting here playing around with your salvation by questioning that Yeshua is the Messiah? Because you're going through a difficult time? Ooh, somebody needs to take you back to the foundational things that if you're struggling with that. So that's why we're taking a little time to do that. So today, today we will move on to laying on of hands. And laying on of hands is central. It's important. And it's used for lots of different things. You know, in, in Jewish practice, Many Jewish people, especially traditional Jews, Orthodox, conservative, even among the reform as well, 
gets a little weird when you get to Reconstruction and humanistic Judaism. It gets a little weird then. But the elders are pretty faithful that on Friday night, if you're having a Shabbat meal, that one of the things you do at Shabbat meal is what? Anybody know? Raise your hand if you know. Shout it out. What do you do? You bless the children. You can lay hands or you can just bless them and everything. But that's what's done, that, that you ask the, the sons, you bless them, say, Lord, bless them. You, you take the, the children, you bless them. The father blesses the wife. And some include also the, the children and wife blessing the Abba, blessing the father. And that's a regular part of Jewish tradition. This laying on of hands. It's not just a charismatic, Pentecostal swinging thing to do. It's not just for the tongue speakers. Okay? Laying on hands was very much a part of Jewish life. And we're going to see this in Scripture. So first, let's go over to Genesis 48. This is Jacob, whose name had been changed to Israel. And he's dealing with blessing his sons. Verse 12, so Joseph brought, brought them from between his knees and he bowed down with his face to the earth and Joseph took them, both Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left hand and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near to him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger. Usually you bless the older. But God was doing something here. So some things had to happen. And his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hand knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all the life, all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be upon them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's hand, head to Manasseh. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and says, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you Israel will bless, saying, may God make you as Ephraim, as Ephraim, and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. There was an understanding that a father had authority in his household. He had an authority that he could speak prophetically over his children. And he's not just saying what he wants. What he should be doing at that time is seeking to hear the voice of God and speak the voice of God over his children. Sometimes we haven't seen the fullness of the blessing on our children because we've been too busy, upset that they're not always doing the right thing instead of taking the time and speaking into their lives the blessing of God through laying on of hands. See, sometimes we're so frustrated because our children don't always do what's right. (laughs) 
All the children, they're young, it's the grown up. They always don't do what's right. You tell them and they go this way or that way and run away. And you get angry and you get upset. But because of your anger, you hold back one of the greatest tools that God has given you. And that is going before him and say, Father, what's your vision for that child? And the father tells you. And then you bring it into the earth realm by speaking it out through laying on hands. I'm not talking about your own ideas. Don't be sitting there saying, oh, Lord, I pray that my child would be a billionaire. I want him to be like Trump, full of money. No, that's just you speaking from your own thoughts. I want to be like Bill Gates, Lord. I just speak that a Bill Gates anointing on them right now. And your kid goes, I don't even like computers. I don't want anything to do with it. I want to be a librarian. <laughs> You're going, no! No, you got to hear from the Father. And when you hear from the Father, no matter what you see with your eyes, the child, it could be in great rebellion. When the opportunity is there to bless them, lay your hands on them and speak God's heart of what he desires to work in them upon them. And there's great anointing that goes with that. You do that in faith. This is something Judaism has does every Friday. Every Jew in the Orthodox and Conservative movement will do that. And the Messianic world as well. There's authority and there's power there. See that. See, there's something about putting a hand on someone. Not, not around their neck. No, we're not talking about that kind. That's not what we're meaning, you know? That's a different type of laying on of hands. And I know some of you want to take your children that way sometimes. I'm laying hands on you. Pastor Ralph said to lay hands on you. Come here, child. Come here right now. You know, what you doing? I'm laying hands on you. I can't breathe. That's not the type of laying on hands we're talking about. We're talking about one of transference that you're standing in representing God at that moment and you heard his voice and you separated your own soul from what you desire to hear the voice of God and you sit in a place of authority and in that place of authority you decide to get out of your sluggardness and laziness and say, come here, son. Come here, daughter. Come here, wife. I just want to lay hands on you. Oh, Lord God, bless my child. Fill him with your spirit. Lord God, give them a heart for the kingdom. Do great things to them. And then God will begin to show you what he wants to do and you speak those things over them. Laying on hands is a very important part of us being successful in what God, what God has called us to do. Do not hold back on it. Don't be afraid of laying on of hands for those that you have authority. Turn over to Numbers 11. This is interesting. You know, Moses gathers 70 of the elders together. And the Lord says, gather me 70 elders of of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the peoples and officers over them. This is Numbers 11, 16. Then I will come down and talk with them there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the same upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it alone. Then you shall say, Then you shall say to the people, consecrate yourselves, 
for tomorrow and you shall eat meat for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who give us meat to eat? And he goes on to talk about some things dealing with eat, eating and that sort of thing. The thing I want you to see here is the idea that the people were brought before Moses. Verse 24, so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took up the spirit that was upon him and placed it upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the, when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they did not so again. Now here it doesn't say whether or not he laid hands on them, but we know it was Moses' habit to reach out his hands and to pray. And so we, have to, we can say, okay, what's going on here? That God steps in, because God could have put it on the 70 apart from Moses, but it had to appear before Moses. And it says he takes the spirit that was on Moses and anoints the 70. And when the spirit came on them, they prophesied. And that anointing was given to them by working of the Holy Spirit. There's something that happens when you pray for people, especially through laying of hands, when you're bringing somebody into a place of authority and calling and position, that a transfer of anointing that sits upon one can be taken and placed on another. Take, for example, in Numbers 27. Numbers 27, verse 15. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, let the Lord Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight, and you shall give some of your authority or honor to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. So then he goes on. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At, at his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with them, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him for Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. We call that setting somebody into position office. And it's done through the laying on of hands. And it's not just a nice show for picture art moment. It looks great to have the elders putting their hands on somebody just being raised up uh, and seeing, oh, that's a great picture. Put that in our, on, our, on, our, on our Facebook page or whatever. You know, it looks great. You know, got on our talits laying hands. No, there's something that takes place that's very powerful. Just as powerful as laying hands and giving the blessing to a son or a daughter or a wife. That in calling somebody to a position, you're not, you're saying, look, though you might have some outworking of gifts and talents that God is already working in you, something happens when the people who are already in authority lay hands on a person that's coming into a position of authority, something transpires. We use the word when people receive ordination, we use the word smicha, smicha. 
That's the word it's used, it's ordination. To, and it has to do with being brought into an office and has to do with anointing. The idea is believed that when people are brought into smicha and people lay hands on them, that there is a transference of authority and power of the Holy Spirit upon the person who's coming into that position. So that when you raise up elders, you raise them up with anointing, not just in their own ability, but you want the power of God to rest upon them. Even in Numbers 8.10, this is interesting. This is with the Levites. And we know the Levites were special. Israel was special, but Levites were special within Israel. And so Numbers 8.10, we read these words. So you shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel that they may perform the work of the Lord. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the young bulls, and you shall offer one as a sin offering. We'll come back to that part. But it's interesting that all of Israel had to identify with these Levites being brought in to service before them. And this was God's way, that it's identification with laying on of hands as well. In Deuteronomy 34, 9, one of the things for laying on hands is releasing spiritual gifts. It says in Deuteronomy 34, 9, that because Moses laid hands on Joshua, Joshua was given the spirit of wisdom. God released that gifting on him. This is all from the Tanakh. Laying on hands had to do with identification to sacrifice the transferring of sins so that something else or some animal could represent you. We see this in a number of places. Exodus 29, 10 and verse 15. Aaron and his sons for, for the issue of holiness, of being set apart, were to lay their hands on a bull or a ram and there was that somehow this bull and ram would take upon them the sins and that blood that would come from the sacrifice that would then sprinkle on Aaron and them and they were set apart to be holy. It goes on another place, Leviticus 1.4. It says if anybody commits a certain sin and they need to bring a burnt offering, verse, uh, chapter one, verse four says they should lay their hand on the head of the burnt offering to make atonement for their sins. Leviticus 3, 2, for a peace offering, you shall lay your hands on the head of the peace offering, whether it's a lamb or whether it's goat. The person involved had to lay his hands upon the animal. Leviticus 4, 15, the elders, if they had sinned, they had to bring a bull and they would lay their hands, the people themselves. You know, we bring the animal in, say, Crystal, come up here, put your hands on the animal and confess your sins over this animal. Leviticus 4.24 says, even if the ruler of Israel, he commits a sin and his sin is revealed to him that he's to go and bring up the sacrifice for sins and he's to lay his hands on that animal. What's happening when he does those things? Even the common people, even those who weren't elders, priests, rulers, verse chapter four of Leviticus, verse 27 and 29, says the common people, the regular people, didn't hold any special office, that if a sin is brought to their attention, they were to come to the temple. 
come to the tabernacle, and they would have to bring out the particular offering that they have and have to lay their hands on that animal and identify with it. Leviticus, being the season that we're in right now, we do know that we're in the month of Elul. Are you aware of that? You know, in lunar calendars, you have Tishri, we have Elul. We're in Elul. We're the month before Tishri. Tishri is the time, the first day is Yom Taruah, Rosh Hashanah. The tenth day is Yom Kippur. We're fast approaching that. So we're already in the month. And the whole month of Elul is supposed to be dedicated to starting the work of looking inside and making sure that you, haven't, you don't have any area in your life that you've hidden a sin against God. Some unconfessed area, some area of, of morality that you're not walking out. That God has been trying to deal with you and you've been kicking it to the curve, pushing aside. No, I don't have a problem. I'm all right because you don't want anybody to know you're struggling and having a problem with some area of sin. And, and the funny thing about it, your sin will find you out. Given enough time, your sin will find you out. You may think you got it well and hidden, but given time, it will be revealed. So you might as well come clean with God and say, look, Lord, I want to deal with that. Well, that's what the law allows you to do. The whole month, you're supposed to take the time to take a good look so that when you come to Tisri, the first day where they blow the shofar on Yom Teruah and it's waking up everybody, arise, arise from the dead, wake up. You have 10 days to Yom Kippur to get yourself right before God, before the high priest would go into the most holiest of all. And so we read in Leviticus 16, verse 21, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. See, things happen when hands are laid on. There can be a transfer. In this case, you got your sins, you're carrying it, it's weighing you down. And in this case, it's the high priest doing it for all of Israel. This is the only time he went into the most holy place and had the scapegoat that's taken outside the camp and the other one that's for the Lord. And he is putting his hands on that animal. And as he does that, he confesses the sins of Israel. And God supernaturally transfers the sins of the nation, of the whole congregation of Israel, upon that goat. I know. That goat becomes the sin bearer. That goat becomes the one that becomes like sin because it's carrying all the sins. Well, there's another, obviously, who became the sin bearer, and that's Yeshua the Messiah. He is the scapegoat that offers himself up as an atoning sacrifice, and Yeshua comes, and all the sins are placed on him. And just like the scapegoat was taken outside of the camp to suffer, so Yeshua was taken outside of the camp to suffer. And that's why we can say sometimes, you know, in debating with traditional Judaism, we say, oh, Judaism doesn't believe that someone else can stand in place for your sin. We don't need a mediator. Tell the, tell the goat that. Tell the goat, tell the goat, you, you can go back out in the fields and play. 
you don't need to come in here and have the priest do all this to you because we don't need a mediator. Just go play in the field. But if one thing you learn from studying about the temple and its sacrifices is that you need a mediator. The animals and the blood atonement and a priest that goes in before you, you can't even go into the Holy of Holies yourself under the Levitical system. Even if you were a Levite, if you were not the high priest, you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. You say, well, I'm a Levite. I can get up in here. Let me go on up in there. Wham! You struck dead. What do you mean Judaism doesn't believe in a mediator? The whole system is about mediation. The whole thing. And laying on of hands is a crucial part of that. It goes on and says... Aaron shall be laid both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Laying on hand is crucial to the whole road of salvation. Even in Numbers 8, 12, it talks about putting the hands on the, on the little bulls for the Levites to make atonement for the Levites. And one last thing from the Tanakh, a very interesting one, a little bit different twist on things of laying on hands, maybe more closely to what I was demonstrating earlier. Leviticus 24, 14, it talks about somebody cursing and blaspheming the Lord in the camp of Israel. That people are walking around cursing the name of Adonai, the name of Yahweh, and using it in vain, that judgment could be put upon them. This is one of the reasons, see, a lot of people think sometimes in Judaism they do things because they're just superstitious. No, they were trying to protect the people. This is one of the reasons to this very day that, that if you're reading a Hebrew Bible and you see the tetragrammaton, Yohei Vavhei, that in most Jewish settings they won't say the name. They substitute another word that's used in the Bible and sometimes to refer to one true God, and that's the word Adonai, which means master, which means Lord. And the reason for that is because they were concerned that, it, that people might accidentally use the name of the Lord in vain. So they fenced the Torah and said, look, you know, just, just make it your habit, you know, not to go around using the name of the Lord every time and every place. So, so here's a little thing we're going to do. When you see it, just use the word Lord or master. Now, God knows the heart of people. And he even used a substitute word. If he knew that you were doing it out of wrong heart, I, I don't think it gets you off the hook. But as far as the hearing of the other people, they will never hear you use the, 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 the unique name of God in a way vain. So here's a guy who actually did that. He cursed the name of the Lord. And, and so Moses has to take it to God and say, what should I do in verse 13, it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take outside the camp him who has cursed. And then all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Wow. Well, in this case, the laying on the hands is a laying on the hands of, first of all, of touching with this person 
that you are identifying with them to bring the judgment that they are guilty. And you're taking upon yourself, because you're about to stone him, that you are responsible for the judgment that's taking place. And if you are a false witness about this thing, you are held accountable. It's very similar. Put your hand on the Bible, raise your hand. Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help me God. Why do we, why do we, well, they don't do it in a lot of courtrooms today, but it was very much a part of American culture for years. And the reason for that is that people understood that the ultimate judge of judge is God. And even if you got away with something in this life, you will have to stand before him in the life to come. So when you took that oath that you're telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, you're saying that if I'm lying, that whatever judgment that, should, that, that is put upon the person for the sin I said they committed, I will take upon myself when I stand before God. So people were very hesitant after taking the oath. They'd be lying about stuff all the way up until they take the oath. I saw them do it. Yes, sir. Somebody gave you a little money, you know. Yep, I, I saw David. Yep, he took it. He wanted that extra help of the popcorn, and I saw him do it. Yes, he's guilty. Diane paid me to say that because she's the one that really ate it. And, and so there we go, and I'm going, oh. And then we come up, and we take, we take her, and we say, take an oath. Do you swear the whole truth? Nothing but truth for God. Yes. So did David take it? No, I didn't. I'm sorry. I didn't. He didn't do it. People used to do that. Once they took the oath, they were like, hey. I'm willing to lie to you on the earth side of things, but this is entering into the place of eternity. I am not lying before God. Mm -mm 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 -mm, No way. Or like some people say today, and I think it's funny, but it's a very common expression. You ever talk to somebody and you ask them about things, they say, "Mm -mm, I'm telling you the truth, don't start me lying. I'm like, I'm not trying to start you lying. (laughs) Why do you say that? But see, they're getting serious about it now. That's what they're realizing. Hey, this is moving to the place that God is listening on what's happening. And if I start lying, I'm going to stand before God as a perjurer. And God says, no liars should find their place in the kingdom to come. Ooh. Even the little white ones. Learn to speak the truth. In love. Don't just speak the truth. Speak it in love. It's important that you speak the truth in love, that you really care about the other person. So that's a different kind of laying on hands, but you still see the power that's involved in that. Let's move on to the apostolic writings. Very quickly, we know that laying on hands was used for healing. In Matthew 8, 15, Peter's mother-in-law was feeling bad. Yeshua walks in. He touched her with the hand, and as soon as he touched her, she was healed. The fever left her. Matthew 9, 18 to 20, there was a ruler who came to Yeshua, and he asked this question. He says, hey, my daughter, you know, she's near to death. If you will come and lay your hands on her, she won't die. She'll live. In her case, she did die, and Yeshua went in there because he hadn't laid his hand on her. And, of course, then people say, well, you you come. She's dead already. (laughs) No, 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 get out. Little girl, get up. And she gets up because he raises her up. So, you know, Yeshua's not limited. But I want you to see that the people understood that there was authority in the Messiah if he would just lay his hands, that something would be imparted, something would transfer. 
Mark 5, 22 to 23, Yeshua, he's the one that, 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 that same story, Jairus asked for his, for his daughter. Mark 6, 5, it says that Yeshua, because of people's unbelief, could ju- he just laid hands on a few sick folk and healed them. But I want you to see that he laid hands on them. Even in a community that had a lot of unbelief, but he laid hands on, on those he laid hands on, everybody he laid hands on was healed. Mark 8, 23, a blind man Yeshua lays hands on, and he's healed. Luke 4, 40, as, as the sun was setting, it was, the Sabbath was coming to an end, and some people are like, oh, we can't get healing on the Sabbath. Yeshua dealt with that and said, you can. It's okay to get healing on the Sabbath. But some people are holding to some of the Pharisees' traditions. They say, no, 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 you don't try to get healing. So they waited for the sun to set, and after the sun set and the Sabbath came in, they went to find Yeshua, and they brought their sick. And as as the sun was setting, they brought the sick, and he laid hands on them, and he healed them. In Luke 13, verse 10 to 13, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. 18 years, a spirit of infirmity that caused her to be crippled and bent over, and she couldn't straighten up. And she could not stand and straighten up. 18 years. Man, 18 years. That's a long time. And Yeshua comes on the scene, and it says he lays hands on her, and as soon as he lays hands on her, she's straightened up. Because the power of God was released and brought healing to her through the laying on of hands. Acts 9, 17 you know, when, when, when Paul, Rav Shaul, had his encounter with Yeshua, when he walked away from that blind because he came as a bright light and knocked his eyesight out. So Ananias is sent to him and said, when Ananias laid hands on Paul, that Paul's eyes were immediately open. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 28, 8, Paul came to a particular place. There was a guy that, that had an issue. His father had some issues, and Paul laid hands on him, and the guy was made well from laying on hands. I just want to show you, he's not only Yeshua, but, but also the apostles. Well, it says in Mark 16, verse 17 to 18, one of the promises for those with the coming of the Holy Spirit is that we will lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. We need to have faith for that. We need to grow our faith for that and believe that. Sometimes people say, well, I know somebody, they lay hands and they didn't get healed right away. Okay, so what are you doing? I'd rather try laying hands on somebody and praying that God would heal them than to just sit back and do nothing. I mean, how else am I going to increase my faith except to step out and do what God says to do? And let my faith grow and then you know, and we've seen God heal people. We've laid hands on people. We've seen some instant healings, and we've seen some recovery-like healings. Sometimes we see people are given the strength to endure whatever they want to. They get prayed for, and afterwards they say, you know what? I can go through this now. For whatever reason, God didn't bring the instant healing, but they had to go through whatever trials they went through, but they had the strength to go through it. Like our, our dear sister Sandra, she's sharing the gospel while she's being treated for, for a disease that had come upon her. She's down there sharing the gospel down there in Texas. Power to God, glory. But we want to make sure we're not afraid to walk out and believe for the healing through laying on our hands. In Acts 6, 6, we read about the shamans, the deacons, the first deacons put into place. And when they had gathered them together, 
the elders grabbed those deacons and they laid hands on them. They were bringing them into that office of being the ministers, being, that's what the word deacon means. It means to be a minister. It's not, it's not a, it literally means to be a servant to people. That's what the word minister means. Some people walk around, I'm minister so-and-so. Good, then could you shine my shoes for me? And they're like, what? Well, you just said you're a servant. Go do something for me. So you're a deacon, you're a shamash, you're a servant. You're there to serve. First, the left and right hands of the elders and the community, and to represent God to the people. You're a servant to go and work. Don't get a big title walking around. Who are you? I'm, I'm, I'm Shamash, so-and-so. I mean, we have titles. People have different titles in the community, but at Ahavat, we're not into titles per se. You know, you won't see me. If you come up and say, Ralph, can I talk to you? I won't be like, that would be Pastor Ralph to you. That would be Rabbi Ralph to you. Understand? You will never hear that from me. People sometimes come to me and say, what should I call you? I said, my mom called me Ralph and that worked. It got me to dinner and I was happy. It was a good name. My parents carefully picked my name. And, and so, you know, it's a good name. Yes, I am a pastor, a rabbi, a leader of this community, but, but uh, that's just something God has given me to do to walk in, and I honor that, and I take it seriously, but I'm not looking to put a big title in front of me. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. God gives, he can take away. Get too prideful about a thing, zip. But when you know you're under orders, when you know you're under authority, you just try to stay in that place under that authority. You don't get a big head about it. You just let him use you like the way he wants to use you. In Acts 13, 3, Bottoms and Saul have to be set apart to go do the work of the ministry. And it says that they lay hands on them for Bottomus and Saul to go out as a ministry team. So laying their hands are used to send people out. There's an anointing, there's an authority that's released from all the others gathering that releases that upon them. Acts 14, 23, it uses, it doesn't say hands, but it says that Paul went and he ordained them elders in every congregation. That word ordained has to, has deals with anointing, putting oil upon people. Well, you don't take oil and throw it on them from a distance. They pour it on you, they put it on their hands and they laid it upon you and it represents the Holy Spirit coming upon you to anoint you for power and position. So important. Hilton, I hope you're taking notes because September 16th is coming very soon. We see that the, that, the, that the laying on hands is used for giving of the Holy Spirit. I love, let's read one of these. This has been given a 10-minute mark, so we'll just read one and the rest I'll just point it out to you. So let's turn over to Acts 8, verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of the Lord, the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah of the Lord Yeshua. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it's not the only way God can give the Holy Spirit. Some people, just in a time of worship, and you, 
God just pours it out on everybody, sometimes in the prayer closet. But the number one way we see throughout the Scripture that people receive that Holy Spirit is that, that someone who's already filled and full of the Holy Spirit, leaders, whatever, will lay hands on that person to receive the Holy Spirit. And to see, what's going on there? Well, there's a transference that's taking a place. There's a connection, identification with the person you're praying for. There's a, a, a avenue opened up, a, a uh, it's almost like plugging into a socket and God comes through you to them to fill them with the Holy Spirit. It's important. I know some people get frustrated maybe because they don't speak in tongues right away, but that shouldn't make you not have faith that if you pray for to receive the Holy Spirit, to have faith, to believe, I'm receiving. I love that Greek word for receive. It means to take. It's a strange word, isn't it? We translate it receive, but it literally means to take. He's like, well, how does that work? It's very simple. Very, very simple. James, receive this. See, 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 he's trying to take it. Fold your arms up. Fold your arms. Receive this. Receive this. See, he's got to take it. Receive this, brother. See, he took it. That's what the word means in the Greek, to take. You have to have a heart open to receive the things that God is trying to give to you. It's like going to a birthday party. And, and most of you get this naturally. If you just apply to the spirit world, you'd be going some places. You'd be cooking with fuel then, boy. If you just apply what you naturally do, you get invited to a birthday party and you're the birthday person of the day and all those gifts are sitting on the table and everybody one by one said, here's the gift. You don't sit there like this with your arms folded. You smiling from ear to ear. Thank you. Rip, 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 over there. Okay, set aside. Next gift, please. Yes. And you're just taking those gifts in because you want them. You're not afraid. You're not saying, well, you know, uh, how do I know I'm going to get the right gift? How do I know that it's for me? Uh, maybe I don't deserve the gift. And you come up with all these things which end up blocking you getting what somebody graciously wants to give to you. How much more with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, when he wants to fill you with the Spirit, are you worried that maybe I'll do the wrong thing? Maybe I'll say the wrong thing. Maybe I'll get something that's not the right gift. God doesn't give bad gifts. So you can come with faith expectation. I want to receive the Holy Spirit. Lay your hands on me right now, and I'm going to believe I receive. We got to have faith, people, for these things. Hallelujah. Okay, a couple of more. So Acts 9, 17, Ananias to Paul. Acts 19, 5 through 6, the Ephesians, Paul comes in. He sees a bunch of people. He asks a very strange question, not the question we generally ask today. When we meet people who we believe are followers of Yeshua, we generally say what? Where do you fellowship? Where do you go to church? Are you messianic? I'm sorry. Where, what, what, what congregation do you go to? We correct our speech in the messianic world. But we're in a non-Messianic world, we can say church. So you're hanging out with the Baptists, you can say church there. It's okay. You come back here, we, we might correct you and <laughs> say congregation. But that's what Paul did. He came in Acts 19. He sees these group of guys there. He thinks they're followers of Yeshua. And he asked them not, hey, guys, what, what congregation you belong to? That's not his question. His question is, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed Believe in what? Believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. Have you received that Holy Spirit come on you yet? And they go, what you talking about? <laughs> we, we never heard, what, what, Holy Spirit? What are you talking about, man? 
And he looks at them, he's puzzled. How can somebody who heard the gospel, the good news, to believe in Yeshua, be baptized in his name, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that Peter said when he preached his message? How could they not know about this? How could they be followers of Yeshua and not know about the promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit? How could they not know this? So he says, well, how are you baptized? Something's wrong here. And they said, oh, we were baptized in the John's baptism of repentance. Okay, you guys haven't heard the whole deal yet. You only know about John's baptism. John told you there was one coming greater than him. Yeah, we remember that. Well, he's come. And they told him all about Yeshua, what he did, his death, his resurrection, the power, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And they said, as soon as they heard that, they got baptized again for Yeshua now because they believe in Yeshua now. And then after they came out of the water, he laid hands on them and imparted to them the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of it is they were speaking in languages they did not know. So this laying on hands is a, it's part of giving of the Holy Spirit. And then almost to the close, 1 Timothy 4.14 is for gifts as well. God can impart gifts just like he did with Joshua, the spirit of wisdom. God still imparts gifts through laying on our hands. So in 1 Timothy 4.14, Timothy is, it says, Timothy, don't forget the gift that was given to you by laying on hands of the elders. Presbyter, if you have King James. The elders... 2 Timothy 1, 6-7, Paul says, Timothy, stir up the gift given to you by me by the laying of my hands. And then Paul says in Romans 1, 11, he's writing to the disciples at Rome. He says, that I may come to you and impart to you some spiritual gift that you may be established. One of the reasons for the giving of the laying on hands and establishing gifts is not so people can get a longer thing on their Business card, I have the gift of word of knowledge, I have the gift of pride. You know, you have a long list of all your gifts and or get a t- thing you can wear. When people come in, you have your honor badge, you know, just like Boy Scouts. Yes, I've, I've achieved those, these things. There they all are. You know, I've done a word of knowledge, I've done a word of wisdom, I've, I've spoken in tongues, I've interpreted tongues. You get a little merit badge, you know, that you come in and proudly show off. No, he says the purpose that he's giving you this gift is for the rest of the body. He says that you may be established, he's speaking to the whole community, that they will be on a sure foundation. And in 1 Peter 4.10, Peter says, as every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That the purpose of these giftings is to encourage and build up one another so that the body will be strong. And then in Mark 10, 16, the other thing for laying on hand, we already know it's part of Judaism. We read it earlier. But Yeshua, it says in Mark 10, 16, and Matthew 19, 13, children would come to him. And he would lay their hands on them and bless them. And all the other thing I want to add to you to this is that in 1 Timothy 5, 22, he tells Timothy, do not be hasty on laying of hands. Especially when you're seeking to bring people into position and office. You know why? When, on September 16th, when Michael Rudolph is here and all the elders, we're going to put our hands on this brother. And when we do this, there's going to be an identification with him. We're saying we, we, we recognize this. We join our lives, your life. We're hooking together, and we're getting ready to impart to you an anointing for the call of elder. 
And we're gonna put that upon you. And that's why we have Michael, who's the founder of this community. We want him to come back and be a part of that. And we believe at that time that we're not just doing a little show. I believe, this is what I believe, and I know Marcellus believes it too. Hilton, you're gonna be in for a ride. An anointing's gonna come on you heavier than you've ever known before. A greater weight of glory is gonna be imparted to you. Even though God has already given you lots of great gifts and lots of good leading, that's why we're recognizing that. We see what God is doing. That's what we do when we raise people up. We already see that God is doing something. We just want to make it official. But I believe when we lay hands at that point, there's going to be a transference of anointing. You're going to preach better. You're going to have insight better. All the good stuff is going to come, all that good stuff. And then God's going to give you something that's just for you. You know, because... You know, he, he knows we have certain needs, and he uses me for one thing and Marcellus for another one, and Michael's the founder, and he's going to bring some stuff that you're going to bring to the table that we, we're like, good, because we didn't see that. <laughs> but he's going to give it to you. So I want you to see that the whole thing of laying on of hands is very much a part of our foundation as believers, and we shouldn't shy away from it. We need to take it seriously. We need to believe that when we pray for somebody comes up for healing, we have to have faith that when we lay on hands, something's going to happen. We need to increase our faith on both sides, the people who are praying and the people who are receiving. Have to believe that something's going to happen because when it's all said and done, it's about God. I can't, I don't have any power of my own, nor my own Holy Spirit, Ralph's Holy Spirit, to fill you. I can't do that. But I can be a vessel through which the Holy Spirit moves and fills you to overflowing. God is the one that brings the healing. God is the one that gives you the gift. God is the one that is able to take your sins off of you and put it on Yeshua. It may not make sense, but it is what it is. I mean, I honestly, I would have been looking like, okay, bring an animal up. What's the name of your little dog? Your two little dogs? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do the, yeah, that dog's maybe a big sacrifice. Bring Milo up here. I mean, imagine this. As cute as Milo is, that you would bring him up and somebody with a lot of sins would come up to Milo and put their hands on him. And the weight of their sins come off of them and go on to Milo. But we take and go sacrifice. Thank God that God doesn't have you sacrificing dogs, right? But you know what? You city folks don't know anything about this. But those who grew up in the country, those of us who grew up in the country, we knew about animals and slaughter and all that. And when you were a little kid, I'll tell you one story, and the worship team can start heading back so we can get to praise and worship. I'll tell you one story as a little kid. We had, we had a bunch of ducks. And the main purpose of those ducks was to lay these big old duck eggs. When I was a little tight, one of my responsibilities was to get up early in the morning and crop down to where the ducks were and, and get the duck eggs in a basket and bring them up for breakfast. We had fresh duck eggs every day. And that's what I grew up on, eating duck eggs. So it makes me strong and healthy. Every once in a while, my father got a desire for some 
duck and not just the eggs. And I remember one time, see, as kids, you know what you do with animals. What do you do? You play with them, but what else do you do? You name them. Worst thing in the world you can do as a kid. You name that animal. You've given them personality. They're not just an animal anymore. They weren't just a cricket or you never named the crickets. You didn't name the ants. Those things you just stepped on when they got in your way. But you named the duck. We had snowball one, snowball two, snowball three, snowball four. I don't know how we could tell the difference, but somehow we could. And I'll be honest with you, those, those, those ducks had different personalities. You knew, snowball two, stop. I, I know, we could have come with more creative names, but that's what we called them all. And so one day we come home, and sitting on the table was one of the snowballs. Nice and roasted, brown with carrots chopped all around it, put on a nice platter. And we sat down hungry for dinner, our brothers and sisters. And then we looked out and we're counting. Anybody seen Snowball 4? And then my mother comes in, what are we having tonight? My father's name was Joe. We're having tonight, Joe. We're having duck. And we went, One, two, three, four. And we all started to cry. And none of us was going to eat the duck. My father gave grace and, and said, okay, everybody eat. And we all are crying. We pointed at my father, you killed Snowball. And my father, my mother's like, my father was like, okay, I had enough of that. Send them to bed so I can eat my duck. <laughs> Because we wouldn't touch that duck. Now, as I got older, Snowball 3, 2, and 1 all looked good to me. <laughs> Are we having duck tonight? <laughs> Which one? Snowball 2, come here. I <laughs> got a special purpose for you tonight. As you grow up in the country, you get used to that. You don't have a problem with an animal being slaughtered. A lot of my friends had lots of chickens. You come in their yard, chickens were all over the place. And the parent would come out and say, Ralph, are you staying for dinner? Let me, let me call my parent, Carnegie, let me come in. Mom, can I go to Miss So-and-So's house? They invite me for dinner. Yeah, you can stay. Yeah, they say I can stay. All right. And she'd tell her son, you know, Bill, go out and get another chicken. Ralph is staying for dinner. And he'd run out there and chase it down, pick it up. They had a big pot in the back with hot water, throw it in, take all the feathers off real quick. And within no time at all, let the blood drain out. They cooked that chicken. And I'm going to tell you, fresh cooked chicken, fresh killed chicken, who can testify to that right now? Some fresh cooked chicken. Yeah, fresh cooked chicken. Look at, look at, hey, here's going up. Mm. Kentucky fried Popeyes, none of them have anything over that chicken. That frozen stuff, they've been frozen for weeks. Nah, that fresh stuff that was once hopping around, you cook it up, right, Hilton? Come on now, come on. <laughs> Man, that's some good stuff. That includes lamb and everything else too, boy. I love it. <laughs> anyway, it is about laying on of hands. And later on today, if we move into a place of prayer for healing or the Holy Spirit and everything, and that God leads you in that way, come on up. We'll lay hands on you. We'll believe God for it and let God do what he's going to do. And keep coming. If you're getting healing, keep coming to the line. Keep, keep praying. Keep getting hands laid on. I mean, you, you, what do you have to lose? 
What do you have to lose to keep coming to the throne of God's grace saying, man, I just want to get what he has for me. And our Father loves you. He loves you. Something will be imparted to you. If you don't get a physical healing, I guarantee you, you will get strengthened in the spirit to continue to go forward. But you might see the healing at that point too. Or you might get the wisdom of what God says, okay. Because sometimes you come for healing and instead of the healing comes, you, get, you ever get this like with parents. You come to talk to your parents, something, one, one thing, and they sit you down and give you a lecture about what you're doing wrong and that's not what you want to hear. Like, are you just going to give me the money? I need the money for this. And they got to lecture you and tell you what you're doing wrong with your life. You're like, that's not what I came here for. But that is the answer. That is the thing that's going to bring, bring the blessing. So the same thing with God. You come to God and say, God, I got this thing here bothering me and I want prayer and this, that, and the other. And God says, sit down. I want to talk to you. I want to talk about how you've been living your life lately. I, I know that God, but are you going to give me that thing? No, shh, be quiet. I'm going to give you some wisdom right now what you need to do. And he'll tell you how to try to change your life. He might tell you to get certain things out of your diet. He might change things all around. You'll be like, that's not what I wanted to hear. I like my double pounder meat, you know. I want that. I don't want to put that out of my life. Whatever it is. And God might say, no, you just need to, it's too much. Put it out of your life. What's that got to do with healing? Everything. Everything. You got to trust him. And not everybody's plan to save. That's one other thing. I just, I'm just sharing some things I think God's clicking my heart. Don't think just because Joe Smith, you had him to turn around and jump up and down and he got healed, that when you come to somebody else, oh, so-and-so had the same disease. Jump down, turn around, he got healed. Don't say, okay, you just jump around, turn around. You're better now? No. Well, it worked for this person over here. Why? I don't know why it's not working for you. Yeshua didn't do healing the same way every time. Sometimes he made mud and put it in people's eyes. Sometimes he just spoke. Sometimes he laid hands. He did different things. You know why? He says, I only do that which I see my Father doing. So we need to be humble enough that we're praying to just take a little time and say, Father, how do, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with this? Now, if you don't get a clear direction, there's nothing wrong with going with the standards. Oh, Lord, bless this person, lay hands, everything. But God may tell you to do something. He's done that sometimes. I remember one time one person came up, and I was going to just do the regular laying on of hands, and, and God told me to tell them, uh, tell them I want them to let out a roar. That's weird, right? It's kind of weird. And I said, Lord, is that you? <laughs> I had to think about what I watched on TV lately, what I read. Like, I'm sitting there like trying to stall for time, you know. <laughs> well, let's just wait, wait for a minute, brother. You know, let the musicians play a little bit here, you know. And then God said, I want them to roar. And I turned to the person and I said, okay, this is going to sound weird. Do you trust me? <laughs> I said, yes. God says he wants you to let out Now, if you don't think that's God, don't do it. But if you believe God gave me that, and he said, I believe God, you know, I believe God gave that. So he let out this roar, and it was a roar. It came deep out of sight. And the thing he came up for prayer for went away. The pain was gone instantly. Instantly. Now, why did God have me to do it away? I don't know. I don't know. He has me do things sometimes. I don't know why he wants me to do it that way. But God has a reason. And so... 
Before we, oh, where is she? Gwen, are you here? Where's Gwen? Come on up, Gwen. Before we, before we have one little testimony. It's kind of a bizarre testimony, but, but, but Gwen. I pray in the name of Yeshua that he will let me tell this testimony so it will reach your heart and it will give him the honor, the glory, and the praise. Uh, this week I went to Hobby Lobby to get an easel because I had something in my house I wanted to put up and I didn't want to put it on the wall. And Hobby Lobby is a Christian company. So I was looking in there and I couldn't find it. So I asked one of the salespeople, where are the easels? And they told me it was in the back well, I'm up by the art place so, um, where they display the art. So I'm walking and then I saw this poster of Tom Brady. <laughs> now you know the, um, that I'm a Patriots fan. And so I'm looking at this poster like, oh, Tom Brady. And I'm thinking, should I get this poster? So I looked through it. I saw other, oh, he's a quarterback of the Patriots, by the way. So I saw other, I saw other quarterbacks there, but that was only one, one of his. So I said, I better get this because when I come back, it might not be there. So I found the easel and I was up at the cash register. I'm getting ready to pay for it. And the um, cashier looked at me funny because a lot of people don't like the Patriots. And so I get in my car, and I'm getting ready to go to Walmart, and the Lord, I heard the Lord say something about idols. And he gave me um, Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So I said, well, Lord... You know I worship you. I don't have any other gods before you. I'm not worshiping the Patriots. I'm not worshiping Tom Brady. Um, and then I said, well, Lord, if this was something wrong, why didn't you just tell me in the store and I wouldn't have bought it? <laughs> but, I, but then I told the Lord, but if you don't want me to have this because you know me better than I know myself, I'm going to take this back. Well, in the meantime, I had to go to Walmart. So in Walmart, I just kept hearing that. So Walmart is not that far from Hobby Lobby. So I went back to Hobby Lobby to return the poster of Tom Brady. And when I got, I got in the line where the cashier was that I bought the um, poster from. So I was going to tell her why I was bringing it back. But then the other line opened because her line was long. So I got a chance to go to another cashier. So I told her, I said, I'm bringing this poster back. This is my favorite team. And she took the poster and said, not my team. So I said, I'm going to tell you why I'm bringing this back. The Lord brought conviction on me. He, t um, he doesn't want me to have this in my house. And then there was another lady on the side. And I said, I had prayed and asked the Lord to let the Patriots win the Super Bowl. And I believe he honored my prayer because my son-in-law is a Muslim. And in Islam, they don't have a personal relationship with God because in Islam, God is not approachable. And I don't want anything to come between me and my relationship with God, so I'm taking this poster back. And I don't know what this poster would bring in my house. And when my son-in-law comes in the house, I don't want him, I don't know how this poster would affect him. So she's looking at the price and she said, oh, this amount, I said, no, it's half price. And she said, well, look, come back on your car. And I said, I don't even care if you, 
it gets back on my card, the money. I just want to do what the Lord tells me to do. So the lady, um, she told me, she said, I'm glad you explained it the way that you explained it. I never thought about anything like that. And you have a nice day. And so then I told her, thank you and God bless you. So I got back in my car. So I got back in my car and I heard the Lord, the Lord said this scripture to me, spoke the scripture to me, Jeremiah 29 verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. So you never know what God's going to do. And you got to be open to his spirit and he moves you and everything and, and, and open up the door. And that's the same thing with praying for people and healing. We got to keep that connection with God and ask him, how do I handle this situation? I got, I got a piece of information that maybe you don't know that, 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 that'll help you. You may not know this, Dahlia. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you, all right? This is great revelation. You are not God. Maybe you didn't know that. I don't know. But you're not God. We are not God. God is God. He sees the end and the beginning all at the same time. He knows about things. He knows about the hurricanes, the things that are going to happen. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow, a year from now, everything. And so we put our confidence and trust in him. And if we know that, then we should never get to the point that we think we know how every situation should be handled. Every situation, you have to ask God, what do I need to do here? And he'll guide you, and he'll direct you, okay? Well, let's praise him.